0: Listen to the Todd Feinberg Show on the free Honesty app. Download and like WTIC and follow Todd Feinberg today.
1: Follow me. Well, why not? Everybody's following everybody. That's how it's done today. Thanks to Michael Harrison. Visit Talkers.com. Tom Brady retiring. All those extra hits he took to play one more year that was so miserable he needed that maybe to knock football out of his system to realize it wasn't worth pursuing it as he gets extremely older for playing football i don't know i feel a little badly for him about that but also good for him that happy for him that that uh the state football made a statement to him that was strong enough to to uh to get him to quit so now he's gone and he and he gave up his marriage for that one year is that how you look at it for that one extra season he gave up his marriage because he just couldn't walk away from the game and if he knew then what he knows now would he have done things differently or would he still play that extra year because if you've got it if you know you can still do it then don't you want to still do the thing that you know you will miss for the rest of your life? I assume that's how these guys look at it, doing a, doing a profession that you are going to, that, that it's going to be the number one thing you ever did, no matter how long you live and how many AI copies of you are made. It'll still work out that that one thing was the pinnacle for you. You know, it's like somebody whose best years were in high school or college. And they, there was a certain magic that they had then, and they can't replicate it the rest of their lives. It's a sad thing. But Brady has so much stuff he can do. He's got so much stuff he's doing. He's just got to go reinvent himself, and he's really good at that. He's a... He's, uh, You know, he's good at living life, so I I think he's made a mistake to uh, think that he had to keep playing the game, that the game was that compelling. It's certainly possible that he won't miss it. I heard a doctor being interviewed who who retired when he thought he was too old and when it was time, and he he said never missed it for a second. But he thought it was going to be traumatic, and it could be that way for Thomas. 860-522-9842. Eight six zero five two two nine eight four two. 522 Joe Markley will be here in about, uh, well, at 440 or so.
0: It's the Todd Feinberg Show, live from the NJ Diet Studios on WTIC News Talk 1080.
1: Quite fascinating, that conversation with Michael Harrison. The idea that humans are... Humans are not long for this world because we're going to invent ourselves out of it. That's the part that's fascinating. We can't we can't stop ourselves from progress. We can't, even if progress is not progress, even if progress hurts us, we have to do it. The opportunity is there. If it's there, if the opportunity is there, it's going to happen, isn't it? Let me hear from from somebody who knows history and tell me that. Isn't it all just predictable? Certainly the sci-fi writers, that's what they found. All right, let's talk to our uh, next guest. Harry Vinsvanger is here. We talked to Harry last week. He is the, um, well, he, I don't know if he's the, he is, a very unique guy who happens to believe he's a philosopher and he believes in capitalism and he's an objectivist, which is Ayn Rand's theory of American government. And it's great to talk with you, Harry, again. And I want to find out, I I hear a lot of chatter about from the left and and extreme forces, I guess, uh, about how capitalism isn't moral. And I don't know how it might not be. Can you explain that for us?
2: Sure. It depends upon your standard of morality. First, let me t- let me define or give Ayn Rand's definition of capitalism. Okay. Uh, capitalism is a social system based on the recognition of individual rights, including property rights, in which all property is privately owned. And that is the Based on the morality of egoism, of rational self interest, rational selfishness, Mm -hmm. she calls it. And if you hold the typical Christian morality of self sacrifice, self denial, self abnegation, you have to hate capitalism.
1: Because it doesn't meet that definition,
2: it's the opposite. I uh, take, you know, uh, Exxon just reported $55 billion in profit. Uh, the highest they've had maybe ever, but certainly since, uh, the turn of the century. And there are two reactions. There's one reaction, which is that of the Biden administration, which issued a statement condemning it. This is terrible. This is a greed. This is, uh, a, not, serving the society, and then there's the reaction that I had. Wow, that's wonderful. Look at all the value they created. But there are two different approaches to morality, and one of them is the morality of life. The other is the morality of death. And if you are on the premise of the morality of death, you don't want to see profit. You don't want to see freedom. You don't want to see individual rights and individual accomplishment. You want to see suffering.
1: Well, so who wants to see suffering?
2: Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I, I have some quotes from Plato and some quotes from Pope Innocent the Third, who's not so innocent. Uh, let me just start with uh, one short one from Plato. True philosophers make dying their profession. They have been looking forward to death all their lives. And the, uh, the Pope, since Christianity is uh, built on Platonism, actually, the, uh, the Pope, in, in his uh, statement um, on the misery of man, says, happy are they who die before birth." to experience death before tasting life. And he goes on about the misery of human existence. Human life is constant fear, trembling, horror, pain, sadness, restlessness. The rich man is destroyed by his abundance. And, and he goes on, and just, you know, that sinful man who's greedy and wants to live That's the uh, source of the opposition to capitalism. Capitalism is is, uh, profit-making.
1: So if if capitalism is, if it is only, if it only exists, if the definition of capitalism requires that individual people own all property, there can't be any institutional ownership? That's a different system in Ayn Rand's view, in your view?
2: You mean like corporations or do you mean government?
1: Yeah, corporations.
2: Yeah, that's individual uh, cooperative ownership. That's joint ownership, and it's spelled out in the— Oh, through contracts. Yeah, articles of incorporation spell out what the rights of each individual are, and uh, they can sell their holdings, and they can vote in shareholder meetings and so forth. So that's a form of uh, you and I, let's get together, let's take some of our assets and build a company to do Mm -hmm. X. That's uh, capitalism. That's
1: the essence of capitalism. So it's only to have a government because the government has no skin in that game. The government doesn't take any risk to start the company, doesn't put any money in. It only takes money back from the corporation by force in order that it can use it to do whatever it's going to do with it. And that's an anti-capitalist notion.
2: Yes, and the joke is that the left now styles themselves social justice warriors. Mm -hmm. And what could be more unjust than saying uh, some person creates a value and another person gets to take it? The government takes it from the first guy like Exxon, put on a windfall profits tax and take the money that the people who own Exxon stock should own it's their property, and give it to uh, the teachers union or whoever you know their political base is. It doesn't matter who they give it to; that it's a system of forced parasitism, and that is unjust. Is nothing more unjust than making one man surrender his life to another, or any portion of his life, or the product of his life's work.
1: What would you say then about a situation where, like when COVID came? And the governments Mm -hmm. shut down, forced businesses to shut down and and drove many of them out of business. But they were doing it for the highest uh, calling, they say, because they wanted to protect people from death, from being ravaged by this thing that could only be properly defended against if the collective uh, stood up together and acted. It's up to each person to defend
2: himself against it. If he thinks there's a risk in going to work or the employer thinks there's a risk in asking his employees to come to work, that's up to him. It's his life. The prop under capitalism, and what we have today is not capitalism. It's semi-socialism. Even in America, it's a mixed economy, they call it. But under capitalism, as it existed pretty much in the late 19th century, uh, and I hope will exist again in the future, under let say fair capitalism, the government's role in public health is zero. it doesn't uh, attempt to protect you against disease it doesn't attempt to protect you against the weather. it attempts to protect you against people using physical force against you to violate your rights, so they could quarantine somebody who went out with an infectious disease in public because he's threatening the lives of other people. But that's not what they did. They said, everybody stay home. Mm -hmm. They had no specific evidence, about this guy or even this small group of people, it was just, we're in charge. You shut up and shut down your restaurants and your bars and your sports events and so forth. You remember how the media um, uh, had a field day with, young people still going to the beach during yes. the, uh, yeah, look at them. There are all, uh, all these people. <laughs> well, first of all, young people were at no particular risk. It didn't mean anything to them if they got COVID. And secondly, it was outside with fresh air blowing, and, and they were probably fairly well spaced apart. So it was complete uh it's really this Christian uh, puritanism that was operative, that people shouldn't be out enjoying themselves.
1: It's sinful. If the government has the power, though, to to sweep an individual off the street because they're walking around with an infectious disease, how do we even allow that, given what we can see now about government and its excesses, what Americans can see in a system that mm-hmm. was designed to take the values it was built on the values that you're talking about and Mm -hmm. it was trying to put those in the most protected way they could think into application in our society and we're now you know 180 degrees from that how can you trust government with uh, any power
2: well you could trust it with power if you had two things uh the uh checks and balances of the Constitution, and a philosophy that recognized that this is right and good and did not tell you, oh, you have a right to a decent standard of living, you have a right to a job, you have a right to medical care, Uh, the most vulnerable among us must be taken care of, so we're going to take money from you by force and give it to them. If the ideas, that's why we, we, uh, you know, it's not true that things always get worse. Things got better, and that's how they were able to get worse. So in 1776, <laughs> you know, we had the philosophy of John Locke, who was pretty damn good in his ethics and politics, mm-hmm. Greatness politics. And his ethics, he was religious, but he thought that God wants us to be selfish. He wants us to flourish. He gave us the earth to live in and to produce wealth in, uh, and, and you have a right to what you earn. Uh, So if we went back to that philosophy, uh, it would, uh, with the proper checks and balances in the Constitution, I would make a few changes, but damn little, in the Constitution. Then we're pretty assured, nothing's a guarantee. You know the saying, you can uh, make something foolproof, but you can't make it damn
1: foolproof. (laughs) <laughs> but but uh, we're talking with Harry Vinswanger. He is a board member of the Ayn Rand Institute. He knew Ayn Rand, worked with her. He's an objectivist, which was her philosophy that, that he's uh, espousing to us. And we're trying to better understand, well, my personal goal, and I, I hope everybody shares this, is to understand what went wrong with the, the U.S. model and what could be done if we were making corrections to it. How would we move forward, and what should we be pushing for? So is that is your position that there is a way, or was there a time when the American system was protected and yes. that it requires an engaged, informed, educated populace to be watching? We've got to be the cat, and we can never be away and let the mice play.
2: Well, I... Don't quite. I mean, that's that sounds pretty good, but I would go further. We need an educated, informed and rational intellectual leadership because it's not up to the guy who's farming his land or who's today coding a program to figure out what the proper political policy is. He, he can, should have a view on the general principles. But it's up to the philosophers who train the uh, intellectuals, like the editorial writers, the journalists, the media people. Uh, it's up to them to inst- instill, or not instill, but to explain a philosophy of reason and rights. The problem was that in the founding of our country, uh, After the revolution, people who wanted to become educated to become opinion leaders went to Europe. Mm -hmm. And George Washington commented, particularly Germany, which had an advanced university system. And George Washington wrote in a letter that he thought that the young people were coming back from Europe's universities with the anti-American philosophy, with Mm -hmm. the European mindset, not the American And by the time that uh, the uh, Civil War came, all the intellectual leadership had turned statist. So it was only a matter of time before that people would be talked into uh, some tricky argument for why we have to have government intervention. The problem, you see, was that John Locke's philosophy wasn't strong enough to withstand the attacks that it got. And uh, you you may have heard of Jeremy Bentham, who, along with John Stuart Mill, was the next generation, well, a later generation of pro-freedom philosophers in England. And Bentham said rights are nonsense upon stilts. (laughs) He had been talked out of rights. And once once you lose the concept of rights and the distinction between force and freedom, you're lost. But uh, now
1: we have that
2: with the, yeah. with the writings of Ayn Rand. We have a clear understand. We, you know, who understand well, Ayn Well, Well,
1: it's, it's there for us to access, but uh, not it's many people there. are aware of it. And our education system pushes us in a whole different bad direction, and the media does, and all the information available. Right. Harry, we've right. got to leave it there. We're out of time. But I, perhaps uh, we, we'll talk again soon, and we'll be able to focus on this issue in these oh, people good. that you're talking about
3: good thank, thank
1: you, you thank you so much for being here it's great to talk with you it's uh it's fascinating stuff harry vinsvanger he is a, a disciple of ayn rand's and he worked with her so he knew her and he's with the atlas society and uh board member there the ayn Rand institute i'm sorry hx We're going to check on that traffic downtown. Watch out if you're getting in the car. Listen to Mark Christopher from the BPS Lawyers Traffic Center first. Mark. It's
0: Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network.
4: Todd Feinberg. It's Todd Feinberg.
0: Monday through Friday, three till six on WTIC News Talk 1080. Oh yeah.
1: Well, so far we've talked about we've talked about artificial intelligence, and have we invented something with? artificial intelligence that will render us irrelevant is it is it possible that we've created things that have made us completely irrelevant and then we're talking about capitalism and government with uh with harry vinsvanger and and uh it's it's i'm fascinated i don't know what to do next except to just go to steve in springfield and see what's on his mind hi steve
5: um
3: um, hi yeah this is steve calling from springfield how are you
1: Go ahead, Steve. What's on your mind? Um,
3: well, I, I, I got a quick comment about artificial intelligence. I have a problem with, the tech, with an intelligent uh, technology that doesn't have a soul or
1: a conscience. Yeah, well, don't we all? But, but mm-hmm. maybe, maybe humans don't have a soul or, or a conscience. Maybe those yeah. are, are facades, the illusions yeah. created by the complexity of our personalities.
3: I, I was I was enjoying listening to your last guest because I started digging into John Locke's Second Treatise in, on Government again, and one of the things that
1: I began to realize, Steve, it's really to... funky the connection we have with you or your phone. Are you on a headset or something?
3: Uh, can, can Can you hear me now?
1: Well, it, it's go ahead. I'll I'll see. Uh, okay. No, um, because
3: uh, I was reading up on John Locke, and you know, of our three branches of government. The one that supposedly is the most powerful is the legislature,
1: yes, that's where so they the, and the press, and they liked the House of representatives the best right and 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 the reason for that is the is the legislature is most clo- closely tied to the states and the people,
3: yes, because we the people are the actual real sovereigns
1: and the biggest threat and, to that in their minds was the federal government, right. Right, absolutely. Uh, John Locke believed that
3: uh, that the danger of mob rule was eclipsed by the danger of the government. Um, so they, they they tried to counterbalance it but but my my main point is that um as far as I can tell, if the Congress is the most important branch, why should the Congress when it issues subpoenas and does investigations, why should they have to, to defer? the executive branch especially when they're investigating the executive branch the, uh, in the 1800s the congress had a jail and they used to be able to arrest people
1: well uh, it seems they gave that up because they didn't want to be responsible maybe
3: well but how do you investigate the fbi how well, do you, yeah, how, do you exactly. how do you
1: investigate the cia how do you shut it down if you have to
3: Exactly. I mean, Congress, I suppose, could defund it, but, but I, th- I think Congress may have to, like, re-invoke their power uh, of being able to not only issue subpoenas, but to arrest people and, and to demand answers.
1: Yeah, Steve, that's a really interesting point. Thank you for making it. Eight six zero five two two nine eight four two. How about that? Heavy traffic today downtown. What's the latest? Where is it at? We check in with Mark Christopher, BPS Lawyers Traffic Center.
0: Back to the Todd Feinberg Show, live from the NJ Diet Studios on WTIC News Talk 1080.
1: I'm fired up today. I don't know what's going on. You know how you roll out of bed and you never know what's coming, even whether what the incoming is what that's going to consist of and you don't know what is going to go on inside of you. It's just a good day. And it's especially good when Joe Markley is here. Always fun to chat with Joseph. Hello
5: there, sir. Howdy. You're so sweet. It always makes me feel nice that uh, I get such a welcome from you on Wednesday. Well,
1: it's we always have good conversations. And, and um, you know, there's something interesting about this format. We don't have long stretches. And there's something – I learned this early in my radio career. I was a helicopter traffic reporter. And – I would I worked for a service so I had like four radio stations I did the traffic for and I flew around in a helicopter and went from one station to the next every couple minutes and those reports were so short that I realized that shortness is you need to be confined if you want to be creative that's where you that's where you got creative so we have this you know we have this relatively short period of time and it forces us to come up with good stuff I think
5: I, 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 there's something to that, and certainly I'm in a different frame of mind when I come on with you in a drive time show where you have you you have to make your point pretty quickly than I do on some stations where they don't have as many commercials, let's say. And you, sometimes you can have a 40 minute conversation, and it gets a little sluggish yes. um, when you don't have the clock.
1: Well, <laughs> imagine how the audience feels.
5: Yes, well, exactly, exactly. Hey, speaking of of conversations. Of course, always when I'm I'm waiting to come on the show, I'm listening, and I end up thinking that's what I want to talk about, what they're talking about, not what I had on my mind. If, first of all, to your last caller who said the legislature is supposed to be the most powerful branch, mm-hmm. and I think he's essentially right. And one of the big problems is, and we've talked about this before, the legislature doesn't want to be the most powerful branch. Um, one of the problems is that just like what we saw happen during the pandemic – when uh, the Connecticut General Assembly was so happy to turn everything over to uh, the governor. Uh, just like what we see happening with issues of war and peace, where Congress no longer wants to vote on on war, they've given the war powers to the president. Um, the, the, the people in the legislature would just as soon not have to make the tough decisions and be responsible for them. They'd rather let the executive branch do it. And the second problem is, the executive branch has become so big and so powerful that even insofar as you want to direct it, it's almost impossible to get to make any progress with it anyways.
1: Sure. If there's um, uh, like in 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 Washington, I believe is 13 spy agencies in in different parts of the government. And, and right. Uh, but maybe it's a bigger number. I don't know. But imagine trying to rein that in. Imagine you're. You're uh, a realtor or an accountant, and you've run for Congress and you, you go down to Washington and you want to bring that under control. How you, there's no hope,
5: that's exactly. Hey, I imagine I was elected when I was 27 years old, I was an adjunct English professor, and um, because the Republicans had that was the last time the Republicans had complete control of the legislature, we had a Democratic governor. Um, so, you the were the turning the, point, huh? I was the chairman of the Human Services Committee, which I'd never even thought about. It's just that, you know, you go in and they divvy them up. And I said, yeah, that sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking, holy smokes, how am I supposed to oversee thousands of employees um, in agencies I've never even heard of before? Um, And I had two years to do the best I could. I, I had basically just a couple of staff people to work with. Um, And that's the. Once upon a time, the executive branch was was tiny at the state level, at the federal level. Now it's it's out of control.
1: So you were uh, you're talking about how do you manage these things, and also the idea that certain people will opt out of having authority if they can get away with not being the decision maker inside of a big bureaucratic machinery like our governments are. Then that some people will see that as a win, and that will become the dominant. Dynamic, as it turns out, in in the American experiment, the founders thought that by creating a large body that would oversee the executive, that would have these investigatory powers, then that would they would want that and they would do a good job with it. The other thing. uh, So so that slipped away like they miscalculated on that. The other thing I wanted to just calculated
5: real well, but there's always a little bit of an error. And over time, the error builds up. Right. Well, that's
1: a miscalculation to me. It's too big of an error to, to get away with, and and the whole because it blows up the whole idea. Now, I was watching these guys in Memphis. These uh, looking at these five guys who who are charged with uh, whatever the specific charges are with the murder of um, of uh, Tyre. I I forgot how to say his name now. Is it Tyree, Tyree, Tyree Nichols? Um, these guys are. The longest experience one of them has is five years on the police department, and they're all in their 20s or early 30s, and where is the supervision while they're out there beating people to death? It's, it's mind-boggling. When you, th- when you think about the notion of governance and how is power supposed to be managed, that's why I'm putting these into one little package for you, there, there's something wrong with bureaucracies by their very nature because they devalue leadership and they allow people at the highest positions to be the guys who shut the they just walk out and turn the lights off at five o'clock or maybe they don't even turn the lights off they just leave and somebody else does everything but they're the guy in charge my idea of being the guy in charge is you know if it's your place you make sure the bathrooms are clean and you you know, you make sure the glasses looks good walking by your store from the outside or whatever it is you're running, and you make sure everyone's doing their job and making your customers happy. You can't run things by putting a gun into the hand of a, 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 somebody in their 20s and not have them supervised while he's out beating people up.
5: <laughs> there's, a, there's a bunch of things to say about that. Absolutely true. There's obviously a failure of supervision. And again, it's not that the nature of human beings has changed that much. These, these structures prevent people from um, being responsible, from feeling responsible, from exerting responsibility. Um, it's just a funny thing. We, 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 there's always a tension between goods. Um, you say this is good and that's good, too, and how do we balance them up? We have a civil service system because once upon a time it was, you know, famously the spoil system that a new administration came in and they just fired everybody in government. You know, the postmasters and the dock workers and everybody was canned. And, if, and you know, if a Republican came in, they brought in all the Republican friends. And back, at, you know, 140 years ago, that was a great issue. How are we going to civil service reform? And we got it. So now people are protected. But the result of that is that it's very hard to make changes, um, and 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 people don't have the authority to hire and fire uh, their, the people who are under them. Um, now, does that mean does that prevent a certain amount of abuses? It certainly does. Does that uh, allow a certain amount of uh, yeah, abuses? It, 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 yeah, you've got to figure out, you've got to find a place to come to it's sort of an equilibrium, and it's always going to be a shifting equilibrium. I'll tell you, one of the things, one of the worst things about politics is, you know, there's, there's the people on the left that say, wouldn't it be nice if we could do this? Wouldn't it be the progressives? They've got to move forward. They want a better world. Um, and the conservatives say, yeah, that sounds nice, but what could go wrong? I think this Memphis thing, one of the things that one of the things I think is behind this, although I don't know how to the extent to which anyone will dig down this deep. Memphis is a place where they have succeeded in um, in having a police force that looks like the population. The city's 62 percent African-American and the police force is 58 percent, something like that. Um, But in order to do that, they had to have an aggressive affirmative action program uh, to bring in black officers. And in order to do that, they basically reduce the um, the qualifications for passing a test or the kind of record that you have or the educational background you had, to a very, very low level. Because otherwise they just didn't have enough uh, black candidates that would qualify. So if you say um, that a test that a policeman takes, that a prospective officer takes, has some value then you've got to also say when we allow people that score lower and lower and lower um, to be uh, employed, we must be losing something. And if you tell me, oh, the test doesn't make any difference, then I'd say, well, stop administering the tests then. And the same goes for an education. I'm not sure that a college degree, a college degree in and of itself wouldn't necessarily have made these officers, uh, I don't know, less violent or, or anything. But I mean, at least they would have shown that they had the discipline um, to, to go through four years of college and receive that kind of socialization and whatnot, but, but the other trouble about...
1: is when when the whole when the whole entity is a power entity, and that's what it mm-hmm. does. When you have something come up, like you mentioned the um, civil service reform 140 years ago, now I can look at it and say because I I understand how power works, uh, having been taught so beautifully by the ruling party in Connecticut that. When you're fixing that problem, you're not fixing that problem. You're figuring out how to ruin, how to plow right over some safeguard that you've been dying to figure out how to get rid of. And you—you suddenly you're handed the way. Okay, civil service reform. That means you can't get rid of us ever, and that ruins the notion of having a democratic society.
0: You can't That's have right. permanent
1: can't workers.
5: Have- the people voted for a new administration, uh, and yet the new administration can't really be a new administration because uh, we're stuck with the people that were hired by the previous. It's a, a new
1: face system. on the old body.
5: Yeah, yeah. There's there's a downside. There's a downside to everything you do. And this no, is no, no, no.
1: Well, well, hey, that's too light
5: a judgment on this. Okay.
1: If you're dealing with politicians. If you're giving them permission to
5: change anything, it's going to be ruinous. (laughs) Well, and this is why the the, the key is not to be so smart that you can figure out what works and what doesn't work. The key is to have principles that say this is the role of government and this is not the role of government. So I don't care if it's not the role of government. I don't care how wonderful it is. We got to say no to it. We can't just be saying what's, you know, wouldn't it be nice or, or, or the worst thing I used to hate here in Hartford, the most terrifying words are we've got to do something. (laughs) Just leave. Leave the state, please.
1: Go far away. That's what you have to do.
5: We, maybe we, maybe we don't have to do anything. And in any case, it's more important to do the right thing than it is just to do something. But if we can, we can take a whole lot of things off the table if we just said that's not the job of government, as you have become extremely good and even a little more hardcore than I am.
1: Way more playing. hardcore than you, Joe Markley. <laughs> You're too reasonable and
5: nice. Well, again, there's a downside to everything. There's advantages <laughs> to being reasonable and nice, and there's disadvantages. So that's where, that's where I've always had a, a, a good cop, bad cop a pairing. So once upon a time, it was me and Tom Scott. And then later it was me and Rob Sampson. But I was always the reasonable and nice one, but I had a, I had a buddy that was carrying ah, a club. <laughs> it's in
1: combination that we can become
5: uh, palatable. <laughs> That's right. But uh, this is, everyone has got to examine what their principles are. They, they, can't, they can't be doing this thing of I'm going out up to Hartford because I want to do good or I want to watch out for my town. This is, used to drive me crazy too, Todd. All the people that would say, you know, what, what, what are you doing for Southington? What I'm doing for Southington is I'm trying to save the state of Connecticut. When the state of Connecticut goes down the drain, it's going to take Southington with it, no matter how much grant money uh, we might get along the way. Um, and nobody else has the job of saving the state of Connecticut. The Southington Town Council worries about the town of Southington. The Connecticut General Assembly ought to be concerned primarily with the state of Connecticut and not with with how much can I get for my my district, which is a, which is a, which is too often the way that legislators. Um, well, that's them.
1: that's how the whole thing operates now.
5: Yeah, it's it's and it's it's and, and you see where it has brought us, um, and we can't trick people. We got to be honest with them and hope that they're smart enough to recognize the truth when they hear it. Joe Markley, you did it again.
1: That was a terrific little conversation. So your class that you were teaching ended last week, and are, does that mean you're idle now?
5: I am. Uh, I've. I've. I'm a little bit idle. I'm going to be. I've given a couple of speeches over the next uh, couple of weeks. The Connecticut Republican Assembly, which is a, a conservative Republican group, has invited me to come in and, and talk. I think it's uh, uh, January 15th or so. Also, the Milford Republican Town Committee. I get to give a Lincoln Day speech. I love talking about Lincoln. So if. Anyone who's listening that's down in the Milford area ought to check out the Milford Town Committee website and come down and hear me give an entertaining word.
1: Wherever lunch. Joe Markley is appearing, make sure you show up. Joe, thank you, sir.
5: My pleasure. Thank you, Todd.
1: Good to talk with you once again. That's Joe Markley, former state senator. He was four years ago, he was the lieutenant governor nominee for running with Bob Stefanowski. And uh, now he's um, a man of uh, semi-leisure giving speeches how delightful someday i'll get to that status let's check in with mark christopher he's been watching a very difficult commute going right through the heart of the cities in the bps lawyers traffic center hey mark what's the latest
0: odyssey celebrates mother's day brought to you by t-mobile you can count on t-mobile to help you stay connected on america's largest 5g network